Hi there and welcome to Leading with James Ashton. This is the podcast where we have two CEOs in conversation exchanging notes on how they work and their career so far and the advice they offer to the next generation. Some of the CEOs who are featured in this series from business, charity, healthcare and sport also appear in my book The Nine Types of Leader which is available to order. Leading is supported by Lockton, the world's largest privately owned independent insurance broker. Lockton's independence means its 8,000 associates worldwide are free to focus solely on their clients' risk and insurance needs. To hear more from Lockton experts, please visit lockdowninternational.com slash GB slash insight. So to this episode, Dame Jane Angardia is the founder and executive chair of Snoop, a financial app designed to help consumers save money on bills and day-to-day spending that recently raised £10 million via crowdfunding. Jane Ann is best known for leading Virgin Money, which listed on the stock exchange in 2014 and was bought by another lender, CYBG, in 2018. Joining Jane Ann is Richard Harpin. He's the chief executive of HomeServe, the home repairs firm that helps more than 8 million customers worldwide with burst pipes and heating breakdowns. He founded the firm in 1993 as a joint venture with South Staffordshire Group and successfully revived the business after it was hit with a giant £31 million fine for mis-selling in 2014. I started the conversation by asking Jane Ann what it was like setting up a new venture in 2020. Oh, James, it's been such an amazing year, really, because uh, if I think right the way back to January, that was when we first put Snoop into beta. So it had been worked on for 12 months and we were all really excited about getting it live in the beta mode anyway. We had offices in Waterloo. We were growing numbers of people working with us. And then, of course, COVID hit and we let go of the Waterloo premises. Everybody started to work from home. And I worried a lot about, you know, what that might mean for the future. But of course, what actually had happened was that the customers that had joined us through the beta phase loved the app and encouraged us to put it live for the general public, as it were, during the pandemic, because it was something that would save people money while they were at home. And so we went live much quicker than we expected. We launched on the 17th of April, and it has just been going a storm ever since. So we have about 150,000 downloads now, people connecting their bank accounts and saving money. And we've been growing so strongly, actually, that we actually had an offer for somebody to buy the whole business recently. And we managed to not allow ourselves to go down that particular path because it's so early in our the birth of the business. So, yeah, it's been an exciting year and one full of surprises that uh, actually, you know, you can have that sort of growth, as you say, in unusual circumstances of the pandemic. And what about the team that you were leading? Because I suppose if this was a group of people that you'd never met before, it might be quite difficult to get them all facing the same way. But with Snoop, there's something about getting the gang back together, I think, wasn't there? There was all a lot of Virgin Money people there. Yeah, so we have, at the moment, we have about 27 people working with Snoop and about 23 of them uh, came from Virgin Money and, you know, a lot from my old direct um, executive team. And, And you're right, I think it would have been so much harder if we'd had to build our relationship just through Zoom. But goodness me, Zoom is magnificent, isn't it, for teams that know each other to be able to keep the show on the road. Yeah. Richard, uh, your thoughts looking forward into 2021, of course, HomeServe, far more established than Snoop. You've been at this 27 years, but what was the impact on the business and how did it affect how you led it? It was really about making sure that we could continue to give great service to our um, 1.8 million members in the UK. And they rely upon being able to call us to deal with a home emergency and cover the cost of the repair bill. We managed to deliver that service. We were pretty clear as an organisation that we were not going to furlough any staff. We weren't going to make any redundancies. 
actually the volumes of call outs are a bit lower during the first lockdown. So we use that capacity to be able to do um, free repairs for uh, NHS staff. And so the combination of all of that meant that we had really high levels of engagement. And I think that's the key to our um, ongoing, hopefully future success, is that staff motivation. Well, the shares look pretty healthy. And I'd love to contrast how you both approach leadership, because Richard, as we've spoken before over many years, and you have said, you, you set up HomeServe 27 years ago, you've said this is the only job, the only leadership role that you ever want. Whereas Jane Ann, you've had a, there's a rhythm to how you, you work, I suppose. And it's interesting that you've already had that takeover off of a snoop, because you've become that launcher of businesses, leader of startups, build them. And then there always seems to be a moment at which you know when to move on to, to something else. So Richard, I'll ask you first, is this still the only job you ever want? Uh, absolutely. And having got this far, I think it's only really the beginning for HomeServe. So I'd like to see a British business that's digital, which is where we're heading in terms of our online platform to find local uh, tradespeople. I'd like to see that we could take that global over the next five years. And so certainly I want to stick around to um, make that happen. And Jane Ann? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you put it like that. I think for me, the people are more important than the work whether that's colleagues or customers <laughs> and so my consistency really I think has been always trying to focus on customer service in the way that Richard does too and to work with people that I know and like because I think that's so important we spend such a lot of time don't we at work that doing what you do with people that you really have fun with as well as work hard with I think is really important so I think that's the consistency in my life and and making sure actually that despite all of the you know trials and tribulations and stresses and strains of the environment and the work that you do that you can have a bit of a laugh and you can enjoy doing that for the right reason for your customers because it sounds like coming out of Virgin Money as you did I think now Two years ago, there were there were a few choices ahead of you, which is a great position to be in. And, and you could have been doing more things at the Bank of England. You could have been doing things at Salesforce. But you've gone for maybe, I don't know whether it was the bravest option of all, to go from scratch again, just as you did with some of those, you know, Virgin Ventures going back in time. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting. You know, when I was running Virgin Money and we were a very small bank, people used to say that joined us from the bigger banks. Well, you know what? The complexity in Virgin Money is just the same as in RBS or Lloyds. It's just that we've got less zeros to worry about, but the problems are the same. And actually, I find the same with Snoop, actually. You know, it's it might be a very small business, but the challenge of getting it off the ground and doing something that's uh, impactful for customers is just the same as it was in the Virgin days. So, you know, I think in that sense, it's uh, a really, really challenging thing. Richard, how did you adapt? You were the founder back in the day and still there now. And we talked just before we came on that there is something about founders that not all of them make it through to this stage because they don't adapt themselves. But clearly you've adapted yourself. Yeah, I think it's, um, I joke that I've had the, uh, the same job for 27 years, never been promoted. I guess it's taken on uh, more responsibility and the business has grown. Uh, I think it did help that um, I went and worked for Procter & Gamble in marketing, so learned sort of how big business operates. I did a bit of consultancy in marketing with Deloitte, so I could see the sort of the big business stuff and then just sort of made lots of mistakes over the years and focused on hiring people to run the individual businesses within in home serve that are uh, far more talented than me 
Yeah, and it is amazing, as you say, with Procter & Gamble, it is amazing how far those early years selling Vortex bleach have taken you. Uh, that's why people describe my career from Vortex was the uh, the toilet bleach. So um, from down the toilet to uh, into the drains with uh, HomeServe starting as a, uh, a plumbing insurance business. That sounds like an autobiography title. <laughs> Jane Ann, how would you describe your style of leadership or is style one of those words that you don't like to apply to how you run something? Well, I mean, it's interesting just listening to Richard's answer about perhaps not or not obviously changing over those years. I mean, I'm very aware now that my leadership style is massively different than it was in the Virgin Money days. And uh, it's a surprise because I'm not sure how conscious it was really. But, you know, as a somebody that ran a bank in particular, of course, I and and because of the person that I was then, I was very much a sort of control freak, people would say, I think. You know, I wanted to be on top of the detail all the time and very much in the decisions and operational requirements of the day and I found that starting Snoop with a team of people that I know and trust I've been able to start that with a much lighter touch and be much more of a sort of I'm now executive chair rather than the CEO and you know of course I am working flat out as I always do but I'm trying to be much more of the sounding board and the team of the people that are actually developing and building this business and I think that at the stage of life that I'm in now and, you know, with some of the adventures that I've had along the way, I think that works much better for everyone. So it's been a really quite a profound change, actually. But as I say, not one that emerged from my change of circumstances rather than a sort of shining light of self-awareness. But but it was definitely the right thing to do. Yes, I expect writing, writing the book was quite a, a self-aware project because you do review, well, you review everything you've done. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting, that book, because um, I wrote it, it turned out really to be a cathartic exercise after the death of my parents. You know, my a colleague of mine was leaving Virgin Money and he offered to write the book and I said I'd sketch out the shape for him. And as I started to sketch out the shape, the whole book fell out. And I think it was, as I say, because mum and dad had both died within a few weeks previously, it was something that felt a cleansing thing for me to do. But as a consequence, I hadn't actually sort of planned the shape of it. it. I just wrote it as I remembered it. And I was able then to look back on some of those lessons. And the thing that came out for me the most was how important, for me at least, a network of friends, colleagues and contacts has been over the years. I just think that, you know, we're all so connected that those personal relationships are something I value very highly. Richard, I want to pick up on Jane Ann's point about standing back from the details with you, if I can. How easy is that for you to do? I remember when I did the piece with you in the Daily Mail all those years ago, you you had said that you made sure that your home address was um, on the list for all of the mail shots that HomeServe did. So it felt to me like you didn't like to miss a thing. I, I do think it's important to get into the detail because um, that's the thing that really makes a business successful. But equally, I think it's about hiring really great leaders for the individual businesses and the two words that I use to try and sort of set out my career is inspire breakthrough and that's what I want to try and do with my chief execs to say we can do even more let's think even bigger and really really make it happen and I think it's about trying to find business models out there that we can copy improve and then think big because I think the you know now you're I think eight million plus customers across four major markets. I mean you have to stand back as you say. You've got to put in more levels between you and the um, and that customer relationship, haven't you? Absolutely, and I think it's sort of 
Uh, I'm good at being able to identify an idea, copy from others. Somebody called me back in 2016 and said, there's a business model in America run by a business called Home Advisor. They've just got to significant profitability for the first time and looked at that model and said, oh, we should try and do something like that in the UK. Is there anybody that's doing it close and came across Checker Trade? And I'm a great believer in not making assumptions, but to do consumer research. And so we went online and said, if you're looking for a, a local tradesperson for a home improvement, where would you go? And expecting them to say Google or um, they said uh, Checker Trade. And uh, so went down to meet the founder owner of that business, liked it so much that we um, we bought the business. And then it was about bringing in a digital management team that could really accelerate that growth. And we're very, very close now to uh, making that happen. And hopefully we can then take that model and put it into um, other geographies. I see. Jane, and where did this Snoop idea come from? Oh, well, as we were leaving Virgin Money, well, Virgin Money, as you may remember, was taken over by the bank CYBG. And um, before that takeover, we at Virgin Money had been building our own digital bank. And of course, when CYBG came, they'd already got their own digital bank. So my team were made redundant. And that digital team came to see me one day and said, well, why don't we build our own bank then? And we concluded that actually, we didn't want to build a bank again with all of the sort of capital and regulatory complexity that that comes with, but that we could use use our banking experience to create something that would give customers, we hope, a better view of their finances by using something called open banking, which is where the big banks, because they frankly have so much control over our data, our transactional data, the big banks are now, from a regulatory point of view, required to make that data available to customers for their own benefit through appropriately regulated companies like Snoop. So we're regulated by the FCA. Customers come and connect their bank accounts to Snoop. We can see where they've historically spent and where they're spending today. And then we can make suggestions as to how they can spend better and save more money. And we can save customers on average about £1,500 a year. And I think you know there's a lot of customers that love the fact that they can very simply know that they've got somebody that's looking after their finances and making sure that they're not getting ripped off and have made sensible decisions along the way why do you think we haven't yet got i mean you've been in this industry financial services for for uh, quite a while now and it seems like the model the leadership that it's such a defensive industry and it always means that the ventures that are very customer friendly with a new idea can have real impact and and grab business but the big lumbering institutions i don't know whether they underinvest or they're just very very defensive there seems to be an absence of something yeah, I mean, I think um, there's a few things that come to mind as you speak, James. I think, first of all, the big banks, historically at least, have focused more on product, in my view, than on people. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you get a really great mortgage product, and a really great savings product, and often the two haven't connected. So I do think the big banks try and give their customers good products, but they have to make a profit at the end of the day. And so they'll look at those two different products and sort of optimise the pricing. Whereas, you know, what the more consumer-friendly organisations will do is to look overall at our customers getting the best deal. And the second thing is, because they're so huge, and I think this is one of the reasons that challenger banks are so important, the big banks find it very difficult to make those products sort of contemporary and innovative and new because of the back book that they will be losing if they do that. So they're always protecting, I think, the annuity profit stream that comes from millions of customers that have been with them for many years, and that's their dilemma. 
So I think new, new challenges, not just like Snoop, but the challenger banks too, can start to dig into that. But of course, it's hard because of the scale of the big banks. So over time, I, I really hope that the, the big banks will become smaller. But we do need stability in the system. So we have to do that carefully. Well, I think some of the big banks have done a very good job of becoming smaller over the last few years, through, through <laughs> yes, whether it's true. through your, your efforts or, or their own efforts. Richard, do you find that you're bumping up against very traditional institutions? Utilities are quite a, a defensive bunch as well, aren't they? They are, but they're uh, great partners to work with because they have um, trusted brands. And I think the hardest bit in terms of my leadership over the years has been, how do we make it big in America? I was aware of all of, all of the British businesses that had failed over there. And so trying to take our business model and go to america and actually i was really surprised that home assistance cover didn't exist over there but the challenge of then signing up uh, big utility partners with a british company was uh, was really really difficult and i made the mistake of sending out my best brit who was running the uk and we also set up in uh, miami because the uh, the claims handling was done by a Latin American um, insurer and took a bit of advice. And I think it's really important to um, have mentors and take advice. And that was, you've got to have an American running your US business and you've got to be located on the uh, the Northeast coast. So we listened and I hired a, a great American. And when we moved to Connecticut, those u- utilities um, are now signing up. Uh, we just celebrated our thousandth utility partnership in uh, in America, and we're not even halfway to um, cracking the market. So uh, many more to sign, but that was the most difficult. But uh, utilities are um, great companies to work with. Interesting. You would have thought there was a time you would find someone very important in Marilago at Miami, but maybe not. Um, maybe not anymore. Richard, I want to ask you about what you said. That was a very, very tough challenge for you. And I note now you have more US customers signed up than you do in the UK, which is remarkable. But I want to go back to what I call the crisis. I think it, I think it was a crisis. It certainly was in your share price, 2011, 12, 13. Real concerns from the regulator about um, mis-selling and so on. There was a fine that came out of that. But you've come back from it. Somehow you, I think, suspended outbound calls and did everything you had to do to clean up the business. And I note the share price now is about eight times higher than it was at the bottom. So talk me through what it was like discovering that and then what you did to fix it. Yeah, I think um, leadership is about not running a business when everything's going well, as it did for many years in HomeServe. But it's about when uh, when you do have a, uh, a very difficult period. And we discovered uh, mis-selling in our call center, lack of governance and controls, took all the right decisions to turn off the sales and marketing, to change the leadership of the UK business and to um, get the right governance and controls and get that culture back of being very focused on the customer. And it was a very difficult period, but we came through it. And I think when any management team comes through that sort of crisis, then you can go on and achieve really big things. And certainly that's the uh, the case now. 
And and I liken it, I think, to something like, you know, Martin Gilbert's time at Aberdeen. I mean, he went through the split cap trust problems and many, many years on, he was still there running the business and, and took it into the merger with Standard Life and so on. Did you ever think during that period, this is it, this is the end? Never, because I think as an entrepreneur, it's always about turn every problem into a bigger opportunity. So coming through that made me even more determined to make the business much, much bigger. This episode of Leading is supported by Lockton. We'll get back to the conversation shortly, but first here's Chris Brown, Lockton's managing partner, on remote working and the changing face of the modern corporation. Communicating with the organisation now that a lot of people are working remotely and will continue to do so is clearly absolutely critical. And to me, that means that the frequency of the communication is really important. Using different technologies so that you can get to as many people in one go is really important. And also, though, whilst it's working hard to be connected, it's really important that as leaders we put ourselves in the shoes of as many people as we can within our organisations. And there's some real challenges, both physical from a business perspective and also mentally, in terms of how people are coping with this new normal. Recognising that as a leader and being open and communicating as much as you can is, to me, critical at this point in time. I was trying to find your low points of leadership Jane Ann by leafing through the book and it it feels less about crises and more about you've known when it's time to step away and and move on such as when you departed RBS in in 2006 or are there awful things that went wrong that I just haven't got to that chapter yet? Um, No I think that the area that as you were asking Richard you know when do you think it was all over as it were the time that that happened to me was back in when would it have been 2008 I think during the financial crisis when Virgin Money had been the preferred bidder to acquire Northern Rock and we'd throw it we were tiny very very tiny then and we threw all of our resources at this particular opportunity and then of course the bank was nationalized and we were left with nothing and the financial crisis was raging we had no money or resources left and i really thought goodness you know i've thrown everything behind this opportunity it's gone away what on earth do we do now and um two things happened which were brilliant really the one was that uh, richard branson rang me and said just to cheer you up i've been asked by the london marathon team if uh, we would like to sponsor the marathon and i thought four virgin companies could do it there was virgin money atlantic uh, mobile and virgin active that's right and so i said oh yeah that'd be fun but of course over time the other three companies all fell away virgin money was left with the marathon sponsorship which was quite a lot of money multi-millions a year and no income coming in. And so we thought, Lord, what do we do now? No bank that we've bought, financial crisis, and we seem to have accidentally got a marathon sponsorship. What do we do? And um, we, at that point, noticed what Just Giving were doing, which, as you know, is the online sponsorship engine where you can sponsor your mate to do things like run the marathon and do it online. Uh, and we concluded that we would use our spare resource to build the equivalent Virgin Money Giving and, and do it just to cover our own costs and also to enhance the Virgin Money brand whilst we were doing it. And it was the most brilliant thing. It employed all of the people. The Virgin team were happy to support their costs while we did it. And by the time I left Virgin Money, we'd raised about £750 million for charity through that. So, you know, that was definitely a time when we needed to do something different to keep our heads above water while, you know, uh, the crisis was raging. So that was important. 
but I very quickly, you know, in parallel, I felt I needed to raise some money to buy a little bank because we'd proven that the Virgin brand would work in banking. But during the crisis, raising money was hard and Virgin Atlantic was, you know, also needed money. So Richard didn't have it. But the hardest thing I probably did was to raise 50 million quid to buy a little bank called Church House Trust, which became the, the basis for the Virgin Money Bank that is today. And very interestingly, after I'd done that and I was home one night sort of feeling that we'd at least made a good step in the right direction, the phone rang and it was Wilbur Ross on the phone and Wilbur Ross had been someone very successful in the US, as you'll know, as a private equity fund manager uh, and subsequently has been in the Trump government as one of the secretaries there. And um, Wilbur rang me and said, Hi, Jen, and I've been watching what you've done. Well done for raising the money to buy this little bank during the crisis. I'm now very happy to invest in Virgin Money. I'm prepared to put in $100 million. Tell me what you want to do with it. And I was so astonished. And I often say to people, you know, through all of these crises, always note that people are watching. And uh, if you do the right thing, often good things happen. So, yeah, two very positive things came out of those traumas. So ride your luck and then, then seren you know, serendipity, things do come your way even when it's everything looks pretty grim. I think so. I think providing you're prepared to make some decisions that wouldn't have been the normal decision if times had been straightforward. So, yeah, t take your opportunities for sure. Richard, are the times when, when you've got lucky, do you think? Absolutely, yeah. I think um, it's about then turning those opportunities to real action and success. So um, I think luck comes through uh, persistence. I take two examples where um, we were trying to um, acquire two of the utility policy businesses in, uh, in America. Uh, those are businesses that sort of copied our model that we brought from the UK. And um, I remember the founders of utility service partners coming to the UK. They got passports for the first time to come here. And uh, it took us 10 years to, uh, to buy their business and kept grinding away. And the third time lucky was I happened to know the guy that was running the investment fund that had taken a shareholding in the business. And he was my main contact when we set up our um, joint venture with Veolia in France. So that was a bit of luck. But we just sort of kept going until that happened. And uh, 10 years to get a deal done, but persistence pays. It's persistence and consistency. You've always got to be there with the, the checkbook out. I think it took Stefano Pessina five years or more to get boots. And there were other deals, I think, that took similar. And I remember interviewing Brian Bickle at Shaftesbury. I think he, he spent 15 years piecing together every property on Carnaby Street. But then if you're persistent and look at the long term, you can do it. Jane, I'm interested in the people you've worked with and what you learned from them. There aren't many people who have worked with and for both Richard Branson and Fred Goodwin. Now, people might see them very much hero versus villain, black and white and so on. But actually in your book, there's things that you've learned from both of them, I think. Oh yeah, for sure. Funny enough, as we were talking about, you know, being in the detail or stepping away, I was thinking about exactly that, James. And I remember saying years ago, somebody asked me the question, what's it like working for Fred Goodwin compared to Richard Branson? And I said, well, broadly, Fred would tell me what to do every day and Richard would ask me how he could help. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that would be my summary of the difference. But of course, I've learned good and bad things from both of them, both being human. And, you know, we're all, we all have that. So Fred was passionate about making RBS the biggest bank in the world and tried to do it in, in a way that didn't go right in the end. And, you know, Richard's equally determined to make Virgin 
the most famous brand in the world. So I think, you know, the scale of their ambition is something that they have in common. And I like the Fred Goodwin story. There is something, I think he was uh, for many years carrying around a famous post-it note, which was the, the note from George Mathewson when he was based in Melbourne to call Edinburgh. And when Fred got that note, he knew that was the call that would make him the CEO. So I think you could tell from that that he was very driven. He wanted the top job and he, he very much appreciated his opportunity. Now, of course, we can have the debate about execution, but you know, he was a driven man. Yes, for sure. And I think that story that you tell also shows that he was a man driven by emotion as well as by intellect. You know, it was fascinating that, you know, so that this story is that um, Fred had been in Australia. He had been offered this job at RBS. It was the CFO, not the CEO. And uh, he'd said that he would only come back for the CEO job. And he told George Matheson that. And one day he got back to his desk, his PA had put a yellow sticky on his desk and said, call George Matheson. And he knew that was the moment. And as Fred was telling me that, he took his wallet out of his pocket and he showed me the yellow sticky and he'd always kept it with him. Now, for me, that's something that means more to a man than simply the ambition and success of getting a job. It's the emotional joy, I think, of your ambition being fulfilled at that point and so I found that actually quite moving. I know, so that's, and that's why I mention it because it's a lovely vignette of the man who obviously is very much described in different terms now because what happened subsequently. Richard I'm interested in your early flirtations with leadership if you like. I mean you were you were a schoolboy entrepreneur as it says on your website and what I found was particularly interesting you were importing fishing tackle from Kenya when you were a teenager and then you even managed to um, turn fishing tackle into jewellery because you you launched a range of earrings called hookers. Mm -hmm. um, so you know where did that entrepreneurial drive come from? I think it was sort of in me from the beginning. So I think it was the genotype which I always wanted to run my own business. I experimented with um, quite a few, as you say, when I was at school and was always looking for the, uh, the big opportunity, even when I was uh, at Procter & Gamble and then at Deloitte. And the big great break came when I had a property letting and management business that I was running part time with a, um, a business partner outside of Procter & Gamble. And uh, we were buying houses and doing them up and letting them. And the big issue was that um, the boilers would break down or those houses would have uh, blocked drains always on a Friday evening. This was Newcastle upon time. And you couldn't get a Geordie plumbing and heating engineer for love nor money. And um, thought, wow, that's the, uh, that's the big opportunity. And set up a, um, a test operation called FastFix. And uh, it grew, but it was, um, it was losing £10,000 a month, but was proving idea and thought, we've got to find a, a big backer that could take a half share in the business. And isn't there quite a good link between a plumbing service and a water utility? So that's sort of how it all came about, the origins of, of HomeServe, getting South Staffordshire Water in the Midlands to buy half of our loss-making fast-fix business and turning it into the uh, Home Assistance membership model. And what was it you couldn't do when you were the, that CEO and, and, and they came on board? Because you've, with P&G, you've got that marketing and sales ability. Clearly, you've sold very well if you've managed to get them on board for this loss-making venture you'd set up. And you've also got that consulting experience from a bit of time at, at Deloitte. But I guess when you moved into that entrepreneur CEO role, there must have been things that you still needed to learn. I think a lot of it was about providing some funding for the business. 
providing some credibility which a, a water utility brought and then all those things as a small startup business that you sort of are really really difficult like there isn't somebody to come and set up the office and sort out the telecoms and the IT build a software system to run the business and South Staff's helped bring quite a few of those things uh, which meant that the business could grow much more quickly. So it wasn't just get me a, a draining engineer, it get me a phone engineer. And, and it is, it's true. And I suppose so many people who are setting up ventures in, in this downturn or even working at home now have to work out all that stuff around them. I definitely believe that in a very difficult period is the very best time to uh, set up a business. I think we're very fortunate in the UK that we've got our um, 5 million SME businesses and uh, we were a nation of shopkeepers. We now need to become a nation of tech businesses and turn some of those SMEs into big businesses of the future. There you go, Jane, and you've got it absolutely spot on. <laughs> well, I was thinking, actually, as Richard was speaking, that my daughter's just headed off to university or is about to next year. And I think as the, our children come out of university, often the guidance seems to be, you know, what, what do you want to do for your career? And I do think that making it much clearer that setting up your own business is an exciting career, a lucrative career, and one that can make a real difference. And, you know, in, with the, all of the opportunity ahead of people today, I think that encouraging entrepreneurship needs to happen more and more, for sure. Tell me about the first time you were in charge. I have a feeling it was when you'd complained once too often about sales and marketing at Norwich Union, and your boss said, well, you sort it out then. Yes, that's true. That's quite a long time ago that uh, I had qualified as an accountant, went to Norwich Union, joined an accounting department that was um, looking after assets, asset management, really, just before one of the big crashes, Black, was it Black Friday or Black Monday then? can't remember, all those years ago. And, um, of course, as a consequence, the business didn't thrive, and I was very disappointed with the scale of it. And as you rightly say, my boss said, well, if you're disappointed with the scale of it, go and grow it. Go and become the sales and marketing director. And it was fascinating because... I had never thought about doing sales and marketing. I almost thought I was being fired, actually. This was, you know, I wasn't very old and <laughs> I was sent to a different building in a different part of the city. And I remember going to see a guy, his name was David Everett, and he was the sales director. He was just about to retire, been there forever. And I said to him, but David, I don't know how to do sales and marketing. And he said, well, there's only one tip that I need to give you, Jane Ann, and that is you go out and meet people and you make them want to do it for you. And I just thought all over the years that I've been involved with business, that thought has never lost me really that, as I said previously, creating relationships and working together and having a common goal that people aspire to deliver together, I think is, you know, part of the fun of business and part of the success of it, to be honest. And what about what you say, you talk about your daughter going off to uni next year, what do you say to the, the next generation that look to you for advice about how they can go on and, and lead something? Because I know you were very closely involved in the, the Women in Finance Charter, for example. Well, it's interesting. Before lockdown, before COVID, actually, I, I was speaking at a breakfast for a, a group of youngish women, actually. And they were saying, uh, you know, what, what if you look back on your life, what do you wish you did differently, which is slightly different, I suppose, to advice. And I, unfortunately, I'm one of those people, I, my brain goes, oh, that's quite interesting when my math works. It don't, seems to work in that order, really. And <laughs> I found myself saying, I think I'd be kinder to myself. And that is something that I say to young people now. And I, to be honest, I don't think they need that advice, really, because I think they see people of 
my generation, I don't know whether you do include yourself, Richard, that have spent so much time working that sometimes you forget to live. And I do really think that it's super important to get that balance right. And I think that people can be much more successful with, of course, you've got to work hard. And of course, you've got to understand the business. Of course, you've got to be focused and determined. But you have to understand real life and human nature too. And as I say, realise that we only have one life and getting that balance right is super important, I think, to be able to lead other people because we don't want to have leaders that are so demanding that people feel they can do nothing other than work. So I think that's, for me, that's an important understanding as I've got older. What do you think, Richard? I agree. I think having a balance between working hard and playing hard is is really important. I think if I was looking back and saying, what would I have done differently, then... Uh, I think it would have been latching on to making sure the business has got a real purpose. Yeah. And we've only recently focused on that. And our purpose is to make home repairs and improvements easy. And it still isn't easy. But a combination of being able to buy home assistance cover or have a platform with Checker Trade to be able to go and find a vetted checked tradesperson for home improvement, that is going to make it much more easy for people in a time where we're all sort of living in and appreciating our uh, our homes much more. And I know you invest in lots of startups as well, Richard. Is that what you tell those entrepreneurs? I, uh, you know, I guess you're looking for a great business idea, but you've got to also see something in their eyes. And, and is your advice, whatever you do, you know, get a purpose and get your people behind it? Yeah, I think that's really important. And I said I never want to be a chief exec anywhere else because I love HomeServe and there's a lot more to achieve here. But I'd really like to just help some of those entrepreneurs that are a bit further behind where I've got HomeServe to and just try and help inspire breakthrough in their business. So making a personal investment and providing a bit of mentoring and helping them to avoid the mistakes that uh, I've made, uh, as well as to find some of the opportunities and successes. Great. And what else have I not asked you both? The importance of social responsibility. And for HomeServe, that's around apprenticeships and homegrown talent. So if we look at sort of Brexit, then we are going to be a a self-contained island. So I think we need homegrown talent and I'm really worried about the construction industry and making sure that we do get more youngsters not just going to university but taking on apprenticeships and a home server in a privileged position to be able to help with that and we need to do those sorts of things. Yeah and I've I've been reflecting and I haven't got to the end of the thought really on it yet but how we spend our time seems to me to be quite important particularly as we come out of the pandemic now I've been quite lucky because I've tried to uh, James I remember seeing you when I was going for a run actually around one of the London parks a few years back I think I was there with you I was there with you Jane Ann although for some reason they cropped me out of the photographs (laughs) I can't imagine why (laughs) and um, so I've enjoyed my morning runs during the pandemic I've had a bit more time to think funny enough listening to podcasts like this one and it's one of the things that I have realised is I mean you know people like us Richard and I and you we're fortunate in many ways not least because of the stage of our life that we're in but 
also the fact that we have less money worries perhaps than when you're starting off in life and so I'm slightly Maslowian in, in this particular point which is of course you've got to make sure you've got enough to support you but once you get to that point I think being really thoughtful about where you spend your time is really critical as I said I've reflected whilst I've been out on my runs I think I've spent too much time working and not uh, working for my own you know virgin money for example for that business and then you find that somebody can come along and take it over and you know that those years are gone and you have a new future ahead of you it's not the end of the world it's not the be all and end all and making sure that you have a rich varied and interesting life is important and i think we should all take the time from time to time to say am i spending my time where i really want it to be is it doing the right things for me is it making me happy and a lot of people i think don't look at their work enough and say is this making me happy great jane angardia and richard harpin thanks so much for the conversation thank you james thank you Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading with James Ashton. Please rate and review us if you like what you've heard. This episode was supported by Lockton, a global independent insurance broker whose people have the freedom to think and act in the best interests of their clients. For more details, go to lockedinternationalcom slash GB slash insight. You can find more leaders sharing their stories in previous episodes. In science and academia, look out for conversations with Sir Jeremy Farrer from the Wellcome Trust, Liverpool University's Dame Janet Beer and Julie Maxton, from the Royal Society, wherever you get your podcasts, or please take a look at leadingpod.com. More new episodes coming soon.